Well, those who attended Dallas Theological Seminary before 2013 uh, likely remember or had a professor by the name of Stan Toussaint, or as he often referred to himself, Stan Double Saint. And Stan was remarkable from the moment he entered the room. He had had polio when he was a young boy, so he walked with a significant limp. But he came up with just his Greek New Testament, and he would open it up, and no notes. He would just read straight from the Greek and expound for a couple of hours to a classroom of often 350, 400 students. And when he saw the class begin to lag, he would always break into parrot jokes. So he would see the heads begin to nod and say, there once was a man who had a parrot and they got along famously. And around campus, from the moment he walked in with his Greek New Testament teaching no notes and his parrot jokes, set Stan apart from every other member of the faculty at DTS. Uh, if you listened to radio broadcasts before 2009, you probably remember a distinctive voice saying, Hello Americans, this is Paul Harvey, and now the rest of the story. And he would give this engaging account of an unnamed individual, and only at the end would you find out the identity. And then he would conclude, and now you know the rest of the story. Paul Harvey, good day. And it just, it set him apart from every other newscast on the radio. Uh, if you were watching daytime television since 2002, you may have seen Dr. Phil lean into one of countless number of people dealing with countless number of issues and ask the question, how's that working for you? And that single phrase set him apart from every other person on daytime television. There are certain teachers who are known for a characteristic teaching style or technique, and it immediately becomes associated with them. And for Jesus, the greatest teacher of all time, his distinctive teaching technique is the parable. In fact, if you take the teaching content of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, 35% of Jesus' teaching is parables. And so Matthew, in chapter 13, gathers seven of these parables that are going to be the heart of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. We will be covering these over the next three weeks. Today, we're going to be looking at Jesus' parable of the sower, his explanation of why he speaks in parables, and his explanation of the parable of the sower. Let's look at verses 1 and 3. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. That day links chapter 13 with chapter 12. So there was this confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes. He had cast a demon out of a man who was blind and mute, and then when he or deaf and mute, and when he did this, they accused him of doing this by the power of Beelzebul. And then at the end, we get this teaching on Jesus' disciples being his true family. Well, on that same day, Jesus left that house in Capernaum, likely Peter's house, and then he went to the Sea of Galilee. And as he did, as often happened, the crowds followed him. And they began crowding in so much that in order to create some space so that he could be better seen and heard, Jesus got into a boat, and then the crowd crowded along the shore, pushing in. And it's this very picturesque image of Jesus bobbing in a boat, presumably with the other apostles around him, trying to keep it steady. And all along the shoreline are a multitude of people leaning and pressing in to hear the teachings of the teacher. And it says, He spoke to them in many parables. Now this is the first occurrence of the word parable in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's not the first parable. Jesus has already talked about the wide and the narrow gate, 
about the new and the old wineskins, about the solid foundation and the sandy foundation. He's already talked about binding the strong man, because what a parable is in essence isn't a story, although that's often what we associate, it's a comparison. So if you take the word parable, it means to throw balo alongside para. So you throw one thing alongside another to create a vivid comparison in order to communicate a lesson to direct a response. So the parables are vivid comparisons to convey spiritual realities to provoke God-pleasing responses. That's what they all have in common, whether they are a, rib, a riddle or a proverb or a saying or a simile or a metaphor or most, famous, most famously, these extended stories. The main theme of the parables is the same main theme as Jesus' teaching that we see in Matthew 4 at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry that he was going around preaching the kingdom of God, saying, repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later in Matthew 9, we see a bookend statement that he was going around all the towns of Galilee, the northern section of Israel, preaching that the kingdom of God is among you. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come. Uh, those who are poor in spirit can enter into the kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The essence of Jesus' message was that God was establishing his kingdom by sending his king. This was going to be inaugurated at Jesus' first coming, consummated at his second coming, and he was revealing with progressively more information the nature and the timing of the kingdom, but then especially how we respond to that news. So when you heard from John the Baptist, the kingdom is at hand, the response is repent and believe. When Jesus came and said, the kingdom of heaven is among you, the response was repent and believe. So the three main responses that are called for are one, to acknowledge the graciousness of God, that despite Israel's persistent repeated rebellion, that God was so gracious, that he was so faithful, that he would continue to fulfill his promises through his Messiah, through his son, the king of David, or the son of David who would be the Davidic king. Secondly, the call and the cost of discipleship. That because Jesus is the Messiah, because he is coming to establish God's kingdom, the right response is to return to God by repenting of your sins and becoming a follower of his son of believing in Jesus, in embracing his teaching, in obeying his commands. And then thirdly, the danger of disobedience. That if you hear this teaching, but choose instead to build your house, your life upon sand, the storms are going to come and that house is going to fall. Or if you listen to the false teachers because you failed to pay attention that by their fruit you would know them, then you're going to be led astray into the broad path that leads to destruction and not through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. So there is this consistency in the message of Christ and his preaching and his teaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is among you. Therefore, repent, embrace Christ, follow him, and beware of disobedience. Now, with that as a background to all of the parables, because they're going to have this consistent theme that they're developing, Jesus gives us his first. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road. Now he calls a very familiar agrarian image to mind of an Israeli farmer who was walking along the packed paths through his field, 
reaching into his bag and broadcasting seed along the fields. Uh, we have a good image of this in the logo of our local Christian coffee shop, Zara. So Zara is the Hebrew word from seed, and we get this image of sowing, broadcasting. So this isn't Tim Sutton with his machine putting individual strawberry plants into individual holes and then watering them and packing them in. This is broadcasting. Uh, many of you this spring will do something similar when you weed and feed your lawn. And there we have the spreader. And whether you're reaching into a bag and broadcasting or whether you're pushing a plastic device and it's spreading out the herbicide and the fertilizer, the main point is the same contents fall on different soil. So when you go out with your weed and feed, some hits the lawn, some hits the garden, some hits the driveway, some hits the patio, and where it lands determine what good it does. The same content, the same act, the same purpose, widely different results based on where the seed lands. And so now Jesus goes on to describe four different type of soils that the seed of the word lands on. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road and the birds came and ate them up. So the road is the footpath. Don't think concrete, but think this path has been walked on so often, it's been trodden firm and the seed can't penetrate. And so it lies there appetizingly for the birds to come down and eat it up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. So the second soil is shallow and the seed can enter into it and the roots go down and it springs up right away. But because it can't send its roots deep, it can't survive the blistering Israeli sun. And so when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root, they withered away. Now, I thought about bringing an illustration of this, but we're all living this illustration. You just walk out on your lawn and all the burnt up brown crunchy stuff that you assume is grass, that's there burnt scorched up because it has no roots deep enough to keep drawing up water when the rain doesn't fall. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked them out. These are thorny weeds that as the plant begins to grow, the thorns, the weeds are sucking away the nutrients and the moisture. Or they're perhaps winding their own vines around the roots. Or the plants are beginning to grow, but because the weeds are above them, don't allow them to rise, they don't reach full sun. They begin to mature, but they can't bear fruit because the surrounding weeds, the problem isn't the soil, but the surroundings. But at the end of the day, what all three of these first soils have in common is they don't bear fruit. One gets no start because it has no soil. One gets a quick start, but it's temporary. One gets a fuller start, but it's choked out. But at the end of the day, none of them bear fruit. There is no crop together. In contrast to the fourth soil, the good soil, because it yields a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. The fourth type of surface has soil soft enough for the seed to go into. It's permeable. It has soil deep enough for the roots to take deep root to draw in water even when the rain doesn't come so it can resist the sun when it comes out. And it's clear enough so that it can grow to full height and maturity and receive the light for full photosynthesis and bring forth the fruit that's the whole reason the farmer was seeding in the first place. Farming is too hard, too uncertain, and too expensive 
to do it for fun. There's only one successful soil, and that's the one that produces a plant that actually produces fruit, because that's why you farm in the first place. And what Jesus is trying to tell us, we'll see, is that he has been going around throughout Galilee, and it's been the same teacher. He's been giving the same message, but there's been radically different responses. Jesus goes and preaches sometimes, and Peter and Andrew leave their nets, leave their boats, leave their business, and follow after Jesus to become fisher of men. But the scribes begin plotting how they might destroy him. James and John leave their father and the family business to follow Jesus. But the Pharisees accuse him and slander him of casting out demons by the power of the Lord of the demons, Beelzebul. Some of the crowds, like Matthew, he left his tax station. He left his profitable business to follow after this man, Jesus. But others just seemed to come. They were entertained. They were intrigued. And they went right back to their normal day affairs. And then some, you begin to see already, Jesus is able to trust them and they go out and they're able to share the message themselves. Why is there such different responses? Same teacher, Jesus. Same message, the coming of the kingdom of God. Such varied responses. Why? Because the word was landing on different hearts. It was landing on different ears. It was landing on different individuals and they didn't all receive them alike. And so Jesus concludes with the exhortation he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, consider what I'm saying. Take heart to what, I, what you're hearing and take heed to believe it and to obey it. Because some people have ears, but they don't hear. Uh, Mike Amison leaned over. He says, now those weren't ears of corn, were they? And no, they weren't. Every parent of a child knows what it is for a child to hear you and not heed you. You are clearly speaking to them. They clearly have ears to hear what you're saying, and they're clearly not heeding what you're telling them because they're not really paying attention. They have other agendas. They have other priorities. They don't want to hear what you're telling them because they would rather stay fixed on the television than to go out and do their chores. And so there is an exhortation here. There's a response. I'm not just telling this story to entertain you or to edify you even, but to challenge you to respond appropriately. And for Jewish listeners, they would have recognized that this was a refrain given to the prophets of those who heard the word of God repeatedly, but never would respond to it. For example, Jeremiah 5.21 says, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Ezekiel 12.1 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but do not see, ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. They had rebelled against God so consistently that they had calloused their heart where it was no longer responsive to the word of God. They had eyes to see sometimes the miraculous things that were done in their midst, but they weren't responding because their hearts were hardened. They had other agendas, other priorities, other things they valued more. So the parable is given, and now Matthew breaks away from the scene of Jesus on the water, in the boat, and the crowd on the shore to a conversation that occurred later when the disciples came to Jesus privately with a question. Look at verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? They don't ask him to explain the parable. They want to know, 
why are you speaking to them, the crowds, in parables? Which means, first of all, that Jesus is likely not speaking to the disciples in parables privately. He's able to give them fuller information. He's able to be more plain, plain, plain and clear. And it also means that there is a distinction between the way that Jesus is beginning to teach the crowds in Matthew 13 from how he had done formerly, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. And the question seems to be, Jesus, if you want the people to understand you, then why are you telling them stories that they have to interpret? Why not continue to teach more clearly and directly like you did in the Sermon on the Mount? And so Jesus answers them. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now there's multiple explanations contained in this explanation. Uh, the first is that God has given you a grant. God has given you a gift. God has been kind to open the eyes of your heart to respond to the gospel. That as sinners, we are all dead in our sins and trespasses so that we don't respond to the things of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that the things of God are spiritually appraised, meaning we don't value them until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to receive them which is why in Acts 16, when Paul went to Philippi and he meets with Lydia, the text says that God opened the eyes of Lydia's heart to be able to respond to the gospel. So the first thing he says is, God has given you a gift. God has granted you the ability to understand, and that's not to be taken for granted because it hasn't been given to everyone. Secondly, having responded somewhat, you have been given something, more can be given. But to the one who only has a little, even what he has will be taken away. Uh, this likely means two different things. Uh, if in a math class, the students don't take algebra and geometry, then they won't be able to go on to calculus or to higher math. But if you have a foundational understanding of geometry and algebra one, then you can move on to calculus and other higher math applications. You have to have a certain amount of knowledge in order for that knowledge to be added to. And so likewise, if the disciples had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that the Spirit had come upon him and was doing these miracles to affirm that, if you believe that, if you have that foundation, now Jesus can go on to tell other things about the coming kingdom. If you've already renounced or rejected or are doubting the king, he can't really go on to tell you more about the kingdom. You missed the initial first step. Related to this is this idea that in a mixed audience, some have been given the key to understand what Jesus is teaching, while others it hasn't yet been given because they've not yet rep repented and responded to Jesus. So uh, for 14 years, I worked in a missions office and we would occasionally host international guests. And when our children were little, uh, we were playing Veggie Tales and our guest from another country was watching with more befuddlement than amusement. He's like, why are these vegetables talking? <laughs> what are they talking about? Well, he didn't have the background to understand that Bob and Larry and the gang were representatives of biblical characters and that every story was telling some story from the Bible and was helping our children be able to understand and respond to them at an age-appropriate level. 
But until they had that key, that decoder ring, the rest of it was just confusing. It may have been mildly entertaining, it wasn't insightful or edifying. And so likewise, when Jesus gives to those who are willing to receive it, certain truths about the king and the coming kingdom, he can build on that. He can add to that. But there's also another reason, as Jesus goes on to explain, is that at a certain point, God judged Old Testament Israel where they had moved beyond the point of repentance until he brought them into exile. And in a similar way, God had already determined to judge the generation of Israel that Jesus was speaking to, and they weren't going to repent until Jesus died and rose and returned. Look at Jesus' words in verses 14 through 17. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. Now, Jesus refers here to Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah the prophet is caught up into the throne room of God. And there he sees the seraphim with their six wings shouting out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then you remember that he says, Woe to me, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. And a seraphim or a seraph grabs a coal from the altar with his tongs and touches his lips and says, Your sins are forgiven and your iniquities are taken away. And then God asked the question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. And normally when we hear this text taught, that's the end of the teaching. Because this is the great rallying cry of who will go out in the name of the Holy God to tell people how they can have their sins forgiven and their iniquity taken care of. And now we give this rally cry and this response to go and be a missionary or to go and support a missionary or to go into the neighborhoods with the gospel. But the text of Isaiah 6 goes on and it contains the portion that Jesus quotes here. Isaiah 6 then says, God speaking to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, until houses are without people and the land utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, yet there will be a tenth portion in it and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled and the holy seed is its stump. Isaiah says, I'm here, send me. And then he says, and Lord, how long will I go out preaching? And he doesn't say, until the people repent, until the nation responds. He says, you're preaching and you're going to render their ears deaf and their eyes blind. And you're going to keep preaching this message because they have reached a point in their rebellion that I have determined to send them into exile. It, it's past the point of repentance. Now, there is hope. There's going to be a branch like in a fire that burns things down and then you see a portion of a tree that comes back to life and it can bring life to the rest of the land. But at a certain point, God says, I have determined for judgment to come. And the purpose of Isaiah's preaching wasn't to have national repentance to avoid the exile. 
It was to condemn the people to go into exile, but then to encourage them with the hope that God would bring them back. Similarly, God did not send Jesus to preach to Israel to have national repentance to rescue them from Roman subjugation. If that had happened, then they would not have rejected Christ, condemned him, had the Romans crucify him, which means we still would be dead in our sins and trespasses. The Son came to deliver his people from their sins, which meant the Son came to die and to rise for us. There's not going to be nationwide repentance at this first coming. That comes later. And so Jesus came preaching in parables, partly as a word of judgment for those who didn't understand them because they wouldn't receive the king, but there's hope. And someday that king is coming back and then everything will be restored and renewed again. That's hard for us to understand, but Jesus doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't soften it. God is sovereign. And when he chooses to condemn a people into exile or into falling under Roman subjugation and the eventual destruction of the temple, he can do that. But he is a gracious God who then offers restoration for those who repent and return to him. That's why the parables. But Jesus says, keep in mind though, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Don't be concerned with those who aren't receiving. Rejoice that you do. Rejoice that God has enabled you to. Embrace that gift because Moses would have longed to have known more about the Messiah that he had prophesied about. And you know more than Moses did. Because you had not only Moses, but the teaching of David and the Psalms and the prophets. And Isaiah would have longed to have known more of the Messiah that he was prophesying about. And, and you do. Because you have not only Isaiah, but Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the prophets that came after Isaiah. You have seen God in the flesh walking among you with the Spirit coming upon him like a dove. And he's doing these miracles. There's a blessing. So... While there should be genuine concern and sympathy for those who can't receive, the primary response is to feel blessed that God has opened our eyes so that we can respond appropriately. And now Jesus comes to explain the parable of the sower. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the seed, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Jesus now, now makes clear that this is a parable about himself, the sower, not the disciples in their ministry, sowers. It's about him and how people are responding to him. And some parts are hard to receive him. They don't understand it. They don't appreciate it. They don't value it. And therefore, the enemy, Satan, comes and snatches that word up before it can take root in their heart. The Apostle Paul says the exact same thing in 2 Corinthians 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Even as we are sent out by God to share the good news of his son, there is an adversary, an enemy, trying to snatch up that seed before it could take root. And so evangelism is an engagement of spiritual warfare. We are doing this by the power of the Spirit because opposing us is a fallen angel. 
And he would love to blind eyes and deafen ears and harden hearts so that they can't respond. There are others, the one on whom the seed was sown in rocky places. And this is the man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. They go to the camp, they go to the revival meeting, they go to the Christian concert, and they are moved and they respond promptly and immediately. But then as soon as it begins to bring ridicule from their peers or peer pressure from their coworkers or maybe even overt persecution, they have no deep root, no true life that enables them to withstand the scorch of persecution. Do you remember when Jesus went into Jerusalem and the crowds cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the coming king. And then what did they say a few days later after the Sanhedrin had condemned him and convinced Pilate to crucify him? Now what did the crowd shout? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Well, what changed? Well, the tone of the leadership. Now this no longer is going to be a favorable welcoming him of the Messiah to bring in this revolt against Rome and finally we're going to be free. Now there may be a cost of being a disciple and we don't want that. And so many fell away. Jesus warns us or gives us another type of soil. The third type of soil is the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Uh, this is the one that hits us closest to home. These are the people that we know, maybe the people that we were, who did respond favorably. We walked an aisle, we were baptized, we repeated a prayer, but then fast forward decades of our life and there's been no change. There's been no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our life no change of values, no change in lifestyles, no increase in good works, no making of disciples, no sign of fruit whatsoever because we just got distracted by the world. We lost sight of heaven and we got fixated with this world, either because of anxiety, how am I gonna feed my family? I gotta work more, or out of greed and deceitfulness of riches, that if I just make enough money, then I'll find meaning and purpose and happiness and be able to protect my family from all ills. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You have to pick your master. You have to pick what you're living for, heaven or earth. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or with what will we clothe ourselves? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't serve ma'am and don't serve wealth, serve God. And don't be fearful about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to clothe. God's going to take care of you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you as well. Because again, what these first three soils all have in common is they are unfruitful. They don't bear a crop. They don't fulfill the purpose for which the sower went out and sowed. But the fourth seed, however, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it. 
who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. When an evangelist named Mordecai Ham did a revivalistic meeting in 1934 in Charlotte, North Carolina, there were a lot of people there in that audience that we don't know their names. But there was one teenage boy named Billy Graham, the son of a dairy farmer. And that seed took soil in his heart and it bore fruit 30, 60, 100, 1,000, a million, exponential. And his life was transformed and God used him as an instrument to transform many. And this is the primary takeaway of this parable. We're not intended to leave this with questions or consternation. So are the first three soils saved or not? That's not the primary point of the passage. Uh, why are you teaching the parables at all? Why do some understand and some don't? Those aren't the primary takeaways of this. The primary takeaway of the parable of the soil, of the sower is, if you will embrace the word of the gospel, that seed of life that God will plant within you, then God will transform you. God will produce good fruit in you. God will use you to change the eternal destiny of others. We don't know what the fruit is. John the Baptist had started talking about fruit when he was teaching the scribes and Pharisees, bear forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus said that what separates the false and the true teachers or prophets are bearing of the good fruit versus bad fruit. He had told the scribes and Pharisees, make the tree good, bear good fruit. Likely it means any God-produced, God-pleasing effect of the gospel in our lives. And I understand it based on the rest of scripture to mean primarily three things. One is in our character, we take on the character of Christ. That God puts the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the repentant. And when we are born again, we are conformed to the image of Christ. So that now we are progressively, increasingly characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we are changed. But then we also produce good works. Do you remember the parable of the lampstand? That no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but you put it on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before men in such a, such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So there's good works that are produced from our life that are transformed character, now acts in other ways, in loving ways towards others. And we do good works and those are fruit. But then also God will use us to change the lives of others. I remember as a young believer, I went on a mission trip down to Monterey, Mexico, and barely understanding the gospel, barely able to speak the language, trying to share through a translator on Monterey Tech's campus the good news of Jesus Christ, and people responding and thinking, God may have just used me to change someone's eternal destiny. And I never recovered from that. I never recovered from that. So we have several uh, professional farmers in our midst, and they helped me with some illustrations and some visual aids. So this is an oddly colored pumpkin seed that when planted in good soil will produce not just this five pound gourd, but five 25 pound pumpkins or others. And this is transformed into this, by this miracle of God's power. 
And God can take this as the starting point and now transform us in our nature, in our character, where now we are more edifying, uh, more satisfying, more appetizing, more nutritious, able to bless others. God can work this transformation. Uh, we have another brother, one of our elders, who works at Shiloh Garden. And he can put a tomato plant into the soil, and if the sun doesn't scorch it all up, produce 25 pounds of tomatoes. And this one little initially inedible object, if taken root in the right soil, can bless multiple families for multiple meals. It multiplies in abundance. And then Chris Cobble was asking me, he confused me with a joke about a mango and completely puzzled me till he had to write it out for me. That a single mango can produce 200 to 300 mangoes in a year, which it can also, a mango tree, live up to 300 years. So a single mango that falls in the ground can live 300 years and produce 100,000 mangoes over the lifetime of the tree. That that one seed not only transformed, not only bore fruit, but now reproduced in crazy ways to bless generations to come. In the same way that if we allow the word to take root in our lives, God can use us to change other lives as well. Our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, and they will change lives and they will change lives and they will change lives and the world can be a different place if we just simply be the soil that embraces the gospel the way God intends, that earnestly believes what Jesus teaches, that eagerly obeys what he commands, and that as we walk by the Spirit and he transforms our character and we do good works to glorify the Father that enables us to have credibility to make disciples of other men, we bear fruit, which is why the sower sowed the seed in the first place. Hear the parable of the sower. Would you pray with me? Father, there is so much hope in this passage that you allow uh, ordinary lives to be extraordinary, to take people who are self-absorbed and live only for ourselves and to make us more selfless, to make us more loving, to take people who were primarily innervated and motivated to do things for ourselves and to build our little kingdoms and now to inspire us to go and do good deeds to bless others. And then, Lord, even to be able to pass on the same good news that has changed us and made us fruitful, to share that good news with others, to transform them and to make them fruitful. So, Father, would you let your word do its work in our lives? And if there is anyone here whose heart has up to now been hardened or whose soil is a bit shallow, and isn't ready for coming persecution, or whose surroundings are choking them out with the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, and as the Gospel of Mark adds, the desire for other things, would we clear away the things that are keeping us from being as fruitful as you intend us to be? And rather, would we, by faith, through obedience, by your work in our life, bear 30, 60, 100-fold fruit that we might represent and serve you well and glorify you and please you when you come for the harvest. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.